Um, we're going to continue our series in the Lord's Prayer this morning. I might talk a little quieter, a little slower than I usually do, and that's probably not a bad thing. Um, Something very fortuitous, providential just happened. Um, Nathan and Eric read the passages in reverse order of how they were in the bulletin and how we usually do them. We usually read an Old Testament passage first and then the New Testament, but that was actually really helpful um, because we, we started with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come. So much of the Lord's Prayer is not just fleshed out by the rest of the story of Jesus, what he does over the years to come and his life, his death, his resurrection, but it's specifically fleshed out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you notice when Jesus tells the disciples, stay here, watch with me, pray with me, that you might not enter into temptation? That's from the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. So we're going to see that fleshed out there. And when Jesus says, Lord, take this cup away from me, I really don't want to go through what is about to happen to me, but not my will, but your will be done. He's fleshing out what do we mean or what ought we to mean when we pray, your will be done. And so going back to these two passages in Gethsemane, where Jesus does not desire what is happening to him, he actively desires that what is happening would not be happening, but he still turns to God and says, but not what I want, but you, what you want. And then going back to Psalm 40, much earlier than Jesus, you have this picture of a figure, whoever this person is, praying, God, you don't want offerings and sacrifices. You don't want me to kill animals and pull out my wallet and write you a big check. Um, I delight to do your will, O oh God. That's what I'm bringing to you. Your law is written on my heart, and we won't have time to look at it today, but I would encourage you to at least check it out. The writer of Hebrews, which is a very hard, mysterious, beautiful, important book in the New Testament, and in the book of Hebrews is basically about how Jesus fulfills the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 quotes Psalm 40 to show how on the one hand, Jesus' death is a sacrifice, it is an offering, but it's not the fact that he died that matters. It's not the fact that it's costly or that it's this or that any more than it was in the Old Testament with, with animals and with grain offerings and all that. What made the death of Jesus significant is that it was the expression of his being committed to the will of God. That on the cross, just like his entire life, Jesus was living out a posture of not what I want, but what you want, O oh God. And even more than that, and we'll end with this in a couple of minutes because we'll have to kind of go through the valley to get there first. But it's not just that Jesus through clenched teeth says, not what I want, but what you want, God. But he says, I delight to do what you want. I want to do what you want, and that that's the essence of what makes the cross significant. Um, I was going to say this later. I'll probably still come back to it, but in it's not in our announcements yet, or maybe it is written in the announcements, but we're not announcing it yet because we don't want to overwhelm you with too much information, but Easter's pretty early this year, and on Good Friday, which I think is something like March 29th, something like that, um, we're actually going to do a joint service with our friends at Storefront Church, and I would encourage you, even as we're now in Lent, just as basic as it is, as simple as it is, to really reflect on this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where something terrible is happening to Jesus. It's going to unlock and unleash a sequence of events that are terrible, what no human being would want to go through. And Jesus says, this is not what I want, but not what I want, but what you want, oh God, that Christians call that Good Friday. That Christians call that moment Good Friday. We don't call it Evil Friday. We don't call it Unfortunate Friday. We call that Good Friday. And there's something really profound and significant about that. And so going back to the Lord's Prayer, and you can open up to Matthew 6 if you want, but we're just going to look at this one phrase. We've already seen our Father who is in heaven, and the first th three things we ask are, hallowed be your name, 
your kingdom come, and now your will be done. If all you read is that, you might walk away thinking, this is going to be great. This is going to be easy. I'm going to say your will be done, and it's going to be a delight to me. But the rest of the story of Jesus, and especially the Garden of Gethsemane, reveal something that you know already if you've been following Jesus for more than five minutes, which is that often doing what God wants is to not do what you want in the moment. That is often not just saying, your will be done, O God, but it's therefore saying, not my will, but your will be done. And so I've uh, referred to this a lot, and I'll refer to it one last time, because after this, we move into the second half of the Lord's Prayer, where we begin focusing on our daily bread, and the forgiveness of sins, and being guarded, and, and protected by God, and all of our basic needs. But insofar as all of us, including me, would, left to ourselves, wake up every morning, and if you're religious, and if you're specifically Christian in your religiosity, left to ourselves, we would say, our Father who art in heaven, please, please, please let me get what I want. In Jesus' name, amen. And now we are being confronted with a very different way of praying, a very different way of posturing ourselves before God. And so here are two visual images I'll come back to once or twice later on um, of the role that your desires could play in your life. One role that your desires could play in your life is of a compass. Should I go that direction or should I go this direction? Is this good or is that bad? Ernest Hemingway very famously or infamously wrote about morality, all I know is that I think what is moral is what feels good after I do it, and what is immoral is what feels bad after I do it. And so their desires are a compass. They're the thing that are telling you the difference between good and evil. And I would encourage us not to look at our desires that way. Another way that's very similar but a bit different is your desires could play the role of an itinerary. You just wait to see which ones pop up and then you follow them and they set the agenda for how you're gonna spend your day. Oh, my desires are taking me that way, so I'm gonna go over there. And my desires are taking me over that way, so I'm gonna go over there. And I don't think that's the, the way of Jesus. I, I don't even think it's a good way to be human, even if Christianity isn't true. But there's something about the story of Jesus that really encourages us to look at and relate to our desires differently than that. That said, I do want to hold out, we'll get there in the end, that Jesus doesn't finally say, not what I want, but what you want. Because that would be not just hard, but that would, it would be difficult to evade that that's ultimately bad news. The will of God rather than my will. God's desires rather than my desires. But the final revelation is that Jesus is a person who says, I delight to do what you, your will. I desire to do what you desire, O God. And that's what this prayer sets us on a path towards. And so insofar as in this series, I've been kind of framing it as the Lord's Prayer, and you can look at the Lord's Prayer in so many different ways, um, but the main framework I'm using is that this is a project, it's a school. The Lord's Prayer is a school for the re-education of human desire, that Jesus is teaching us to desire differently. He's teaching us to desire in different directions and to have our own desires transformed. And so real quick, um, and we might come back to this next week, we'll see, and if we don't, we'll come back to it soon, what we're going to focus on today is not how do you know what God's will is. How do I know whether that's God's will or this is God's will? That is, we're not going to focus on discernment today. That is an important question, but I want you to notice that what Jesus teaches us to pray for is not, Lord, teach me what your will is, but to just say, Lord, whatever your will is, I want that to happen in this situation. I want that to be the priority of what comes into effect in this moment. And so three things real quick of why I think, even though it's important, and, and as Christians and as a pastor, we do need to talk about this. Is it God's will that I do this? Is it God's will that I do that? That there's a deeper and more important question before that, and that encompasses it. 
And, um, and it's this, 98% of the time, if you are a Christian and you take your faith seriously, you get to know the scriptures, you follow Jesus, you prioritize that, as you get older, I think it's true that 98% of the time, the will of God will be fairly obvious. That is just laid out for us. The will of the Lord is your sanctification, not for you to disobey him. The will of the Lord is that you would rejoice and be grateful, not grumble and despair. The will of the Lord is that you would love your neighbor and not be selfish. So often, the will of the Lord is actually pretty plain. It's more living it out that's the real problem. But that said, even if you think that's a really strong over-exaggeration, maybe 70% maybe of the time, Nick, but not 98% of the time, even there I still want to say, whether it's the other 2% of the time or the other 30% of the time, it is still the case that the more significant factor is whether you walk into those moments of ambiguity already committed to doing the will of God or whether you're waffling on that and kind of open to doing something else depending on how it plays out. And so ignorance is not the big challenge. Sin, selfishness, idolatry is the big challenge. And so as we pray this, we are being challenged. And so here's the three, three, three things we're going to do for a few minutes. And at the end of each one, I'm going to give you a question. I'm going to encourage you to have three questions you take away today. And, and, and one of the reasons that, yes, we are learning how to pray, but the Lord's Prayer is not just significant. It's not mainly significant for the 30 minutes a day you actually go pray or the once a month you come with Neighborhood Church and we pray like next Monday night, a week from tomorrow, we're going to pray and I hope you'll come. Um, but the Lord's Prayer is we're called to pray without ceasing, that we are to have a prayerful posture in every moment in every situation of life. And so there is something that is always and everywhere relevant about, let's put it this way, kind of use another spatial visual image. Every door you walk into, every moment that arrives, you should go into it already postured, saying, not what I want, but what God wants. Not what I want, but what God wants. And that's what Jesus is teaching us here. And so the first thing is this, and just want to name it out loud, that I think in the Lord's Prayer, and maybe in the Christian life overall, this is the greatest challenge. This is where if somebody falls away from faith or if somebody finally, like the rich young ruler, hears a lot of attractive, beautiful things about Jesus, but finally goes away sad, it's because Jesus' desire goes one way and my desire goes another way. And so I want to give us permission and even encourage you, if you have not named that this is the great challenge, there's a reason that we're going to talk about temptation in a couple of weeks. This is where we're tempted. This is where we find the edge to be particularly hard. In 1 Corinthians 6, C.S. Lewis used to say this all the time, the most unpopular teaching ethically or morally of the Christian faith is not, as many people think in our culture today, something connected to sex. In other cultures, it might be connected to power. In other cultures, it might be connected to money. But C.S. Lewis says the most offensive thing about the Christian faith to us in our fallenness as it hits us to begin with is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You belong to another. Glorify God with your life. That that's the great dividing line. And in our sinfulness, in our fallenness, in our fear, in our anxiety, in the confusion and power and intensity of our desires, there will be, and there already has been, I'm sure for each of you, there certainly has been, and often continues to be for me, a thousand moments where that feels like a death blow. A thousand moments where you want to get away from that. A thousand moments where you don't want to swallow that. Or if you do swallow it, it just feels like cough medicine. It just feels like I'm doing this in spite of the fact that this is not what I want to do. And so the great challenge 
of Christianity, I think, finally comes here for us. And so let me back up and, and, and give you two categories. Different cultures and different individuals ultimately resolve this because the reality is that even if you're not a Christian, every human being in the history of the world has had to not do in the moment something they wanted to do because of some other vision. It could just be that, you know, if I keep smoking cigarettes, I'm going to die of emphysema when I'm 34, and I don't want to die at 34, so I'm not going to smoke a cigarette even though I want to. You don't have to believe in God to be there. If, if any human being ever did every single thing they want in the moment, they would bring so much destruction to other people, and almost certainly other people would stop that really quickly because of how just crazy it would be, let alone the, the impact it would have on you. And so every culture, every individual has a way of orienting towards us, uh, us towards our desires. But I think the two main categories, and, the, and these are abstract, but I'll flesh them out. In our culture, and, and I'm saying that in terms of modern Western culture in general, our paradigm tends to be autonomy. That the way you sort out the desires that are legitimate and the desires that are important and the desires that you follow are you look for the ones that are who you are and the ones that are autos in Greek is self. And so namas is law. And so autonomy is self-rule that ultimately my own desires have authority over and take precedence over desires that come from my parents or from my culture or from my friends or even potentially from God. And, and just to say this, I do think there's a lot of strengths to autonomy. I don't wanna exalt one of these two systems. I actually think ultimately we shouldn't go either of these directions as Christians. It's probably the case that in most of human history, the, the system that's at play in a thousand different ways is heteronomy. The idea is that the way you understand what you're supposed to do is that something comes from outside of you. Heteros is other, a law of the other, and something comes from outside of you. It might come from your parents. It might come from your culture. It might come from society at large. It might come from the government. It might come from peer pressure in middle school. But you, when, you figure, when you're asking the question, what am I supposed to do here, is you look at something outside of you and say, that's what I'm supposed to do, whether I like it or not. Now, that has some surface similarities to Christianity, because if you only had those two options, you might say, well, the will of God comes from outside of us, and so Christianity is heteronomy, it's not autonomy. But I actually think there's strengths to both. There are things that a culture that values parents and values tradition and values the voice of something before you and outside of you that, that will avoid certain things that our culture falls into all the time. But one of the reasons people are so passionate about autonomy is anybody who grows up in a heteronomous culture or a heteronomous family knows I have been burned by that over and over and over again that I've been expected to do things for the sake of somebody else's desires and perspective and will, and I got hurt by that while somebody else took, uh, kind of either took advantage of it or, or, or lied to me that it would be for my good, but it really wasn't. And so on the other hand, just want to say, to quote a great songwriter, Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. That is, it might be the desires that come out of you, but you don't choose what desires come out of you. You don't step back and rationally say, I'm gonna desire this today. And you all know enough if you step back to know whatever desires you have, they're very shaped by your culture and by your experience and by what has happened to you and by what's going on around you. And so all of us have to have some understanding of how we sort through the desires we pursue, the desires we don't. And so real quick, to, to back up, because we just did confession of sin, here is something, the Garden of Gethsemane is so challenging, it's so profound, but, but, but it is beautiful and it is so helpful. 
And I want to name something here because as somebody who didn't grow up in the Christian faith and who is not kind of naturally disposed to be religious, I've noticed that many other Christians, whether they grew up in the Christian home or a Christian family, or whether they're just much more conscientious than I am. I'm not a very conscientious person. Um, I, I'm not naturally. Like if you expect something of me, I just have no problem not living up to that expectation. I don't lose any sleep over that. And in in any Christian community, there tends to be a lot of, and this is not a bad thing, I'm just naming it, a lot of very tender consciences, a lot of very sensitive consciences of, am I supposed to feel shame over this? Am I supposed to feel guilt over this? And so let's back up and look at the Garden of Gethsemane one more time, and, and you don't need to turn there, but I want you to notice that Jesus Christ, who Christians confess, is the eternal Son of God, and as a human being, never sinned found himself in a situation where what God wanted and what he wanted felt oppressive, felt death-dealing, and he did not want to do what God wanted him to do. So I want to create a category for you. When you come to this fork in the road, here's what God wants and here's what I want, the fact that they go in two different directions is not necessarily because of your sin. It could be, but not necessarily. If you were, and you will never be in this life, just like I will never be in this life, if you followed Jesus perfectly and you were free of the power of sin, you would still find this to be painful in this world. Let me give you one example, and I don't want to delay on this too much because it's not my story. And one of my main purposes in this is just to encourage us to pray. Um, when I went up to New Haven for, for three days this week, I um, got to speak to a couple of different campus groups and college student groups that I've known for 12, 13, 14 years now. And whenever I go up there and I teach for a couple of nights, I always stay with my good friends Jeff and Kathy. Jeff and Kathy had a big impact on Chris Kim, on Ibuka, on Joseph Kim, on Justin Choi. For those of you who remember Richard Chung and Nyon, Jeff and Kathy had a really big impact on them. And there, when I met them 15 years ago, they were in their mid-50s. They're now in the latter half of their 60s, and they just retired. This is public knowledge. I'm not sharing anything, and I've got permission to share this. And mostly, I just want you to pray. Jeff retired from campus ministry after doing it for 40 years. And within a year of retiring, he started feeling really sick, really tired, and he was diagnosed with Parkinson's degree, disease. This is not what they wanted retirement to look like. This is not what they thought after a lifetime of serving God, after a lifetime of, of investing in other people, they had all these plans that we're going to travel the world, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and now Jeff can barely get out of the chair a lot of days because he's so overwhelmed by exhaustion and by brain fog and all of this. And so Jeff and Kathy and I are talking, and we're crying, and we're praying, and, and there's just this, and every instinct in you would be wrong if you think if they love Jesus more, they would not find this difficult. They would not find this heartbreaking if they loved God. It's because of their sin that this rubs them the wrong direction. That's not true. And so I just want to say a lot of the moments in your life, and, and can I just encourage you to pray for Jeff and to pray for Kathy in this season? I would, we prayed for them at our prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago. We're going to pray for them again this coming Monday. I love Jeff and Kathy. I'm praying for them regularly. Would love, to pray, uh, would love for you to pray for them too. But even the center, God, not, not what we want, not even what they want, but what you want, would you bring this about in their lives? But would it also be a delight to them as they, as they follow that further? But the Garden of Gethsemane is such a challenge here. 
is I just wanna encourage you before we go any farther, there will be a million moments in your life where you find this difficult and you don't wanna do it and it feels like death and you should not bring it to confession of sin and confess it as sin because that will be a category mistake. And so I wanna just say that very, very clearly. Now, there will also be many moments where you will need to bring a confession of sin because you're selfish or spoiled or I'm selfish or I'm spoiled, but you need to learn to distinguish between those moments. Sometimes it's because of the brokenness in us that this is difficult and that's where we confess our sin. Sometimes it's the brokenness of the world that makes this difficult and that is not our responsibility and we are not to be ashamed of that. And that in a nutshell is why neither autonomy nor heteronomy can be what we adopt because basically what they're saying is you can take your cues from yourself or you can take your cues from the world, but both you and the world are broken. And so none of these are good itineraries to follow. Your parents might be wonderful, your parents might be awful, they might be anywhere in between, but your parents, you are to honor them even if they're really, really difficult and you have to hate your parents if you wanna follow Jesus, even if they're amazing. That is, you have to subordinate what Jesus wants over and you have to subordinate what your parents or your culture or your own desires expect and so just want us to to be able to articulate this but also to feel how challenging it is this is the center of temptation for us and so here's the the first question i want to give you in every situation of your life every set of circumstances every moment that arrives let's go in let's seek to go in prayerfully with a posture of what i want to find out is what God wants in this moment. What I wanna discover in this event is what God desires. Not what my parents desire, not what I desire, not what my culture or the world expects, but I wanna primarily figure out what the will of God is, what God desires here. That I think is a good short summary of what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord never tells you what the answer is, but it's a disposition that the clue to every moment, the clue to every scenario, and the most important thing is to discover what your creator wants to happen here, that that's what we're exploring for. That's what we're questing for. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're assuming ahead of time. If I could figure out what this is and if it could happen, that would be the key to doing this moment rightly and for that to happen. In 1 Peter, let me read this and then we'll move on to the second point. 1 Peter 4 starts with this challenging call to us. It says, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Jesus suffered in the flesh. Think of the Garden of Gethsemane there. Since Jesus often didn't get what he wanted, but he suffered as he pursued God's will, arm yourselves with the same mindset, the same way of thinking. That is not my will, but your will be done. Not what I want, but what you want, God. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the body, no longer for human desires, but for the will or the desire of God. Why do we do that? The end of the chapter reminds us why. 1 Peter 4 ends with this. Therefore, let those of you who suffer as you follow God's will according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator while doing good, 
and that's the imitation of Christ. That's what Jesus did. Even as he suffered, even as he said no to what he wanted, and if you know anything about the story of Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus said no to what the world expected of him, even his mom and dad expected of him, even his followers expected of him, even his friends expected of him, as much as he said no to what he wanted in a moment, and yet he was entrusting his life to a faithful creator even as he did that. And so I encourage us, let's ask this question regularly. God, what do you want in this situation? What do you want in this moment? It's true in a million areas of life that um, it's not just what the right answer is, but it's whether you're asking the right question. If you're asking the wrong questions, there are some answers you'll just never find. The most important question is, God, what do you want in this moment? What do you want in this part of my life? What do you want as this arrives in these circumstances? Doesn't always mean that it's obvious what it is. It certainly doesn't mean that it's always what we want or what we would choose ourselves, but it's, the mo it's at the center of our compass. This, it's the itinerary we follow. And so second thing is this, and I'm gonna take us back to something that is either something that maybe you've never thought about, or if you're a Christian or you, you really like reading the Bible, maybe something with a lot of mystery. When Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, let your will be done, and then in the Garden of Gethsemane shows that that requires also saying, not my will be done, but your will be done, I wanna suggest that we are having held out before us in this moment the tree of the knowledge of good and evil once again. Do you remember in Genesis 3, God creates human beings, he gives them commands, he makes them promises, and there's two trees. There's a tree of life, and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm only going to read one verse in Genesis 3, but Genesis 3 starts with the, the serpent, the satanic figure, this evildoer who's trying to thwart what God wants to happen in the world, is the most crafty of all the beasts. The human beings have clear understandings of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. The serpent says, did God really say that? And then Adam and Eve, they see the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we're told in Genesis 3, verse 6, this. And, and you'll hear this again in just a couple of minutes. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there's the first one, she's hungry, and this will make my stomach not be hungry anymore, that it was a delight to the eyes. There's something compelling about this. If I went after this, there would be beauty in this experience. There would, be, there would be something that would draw me out of my inner emptiness and maybe fulfill me. And then third, saw that it was desired to make one wise. That is, this is going to set me apart from other people. This is going to bring about the good life, the, the flourishing that wisdom does. And so she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, you know, notice that the story of the fall, the story of what's gone wrong with us as Christians is, and, and why is it called the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that what mattered to them in this situation is not what was good, what was wrong, and evil. What, what does my creator want? What, what is disobedient to God? But they took their cues from their desires. Now, because Eve is forefronted there, that, that's often problematic for us today is the woman being blamed here, not the man. That's clearly not true because the very next line, she gives it to her husband and he also, knowing what's supposed to happen, eats it. I think it's a reminder that different people are tempted towards the same act of wrong for different reasons. And, and so one of the things I, I just want to say to all of us is where the pressure point is, where it feels especially painful, it will be one thing in your life and it will be something very different in somebody else's life. 
But underneath the great temptation is to say, what I want is more important than the will of God. What I want is more important than what God has said. And they turn away, and this happens. If you have ever read some of the Old Testament, like Proverbs and Psalms, a lot of the wisdom literature, I still, after being a Christian for 25, 27 years now, I still sometimes cringe when I hear this language, but you can't read the Psalms for five minutes without saying that the two main characters under God are the righteous and the wicked. I'm always like, ah, just like, are, are we really supposed to see ourselves as righteous? Are we really supposed to call people wicked? And, and, and leaving that to the side now, I, I want to say two things about these two groups of people. The first is that they're all sinful. They're all broken. The righteous are not perfect, and the wicked are not like special villains who are particularly evil. That's not it. They, they come from the same starting point. And the second thing, and more importantly, is that when the righteous and the wicked are described in wisdom literature, the two images or the two categories that come up the most over and over and over again is the category of desire and the category of authority. Um, both the righteous and the wicked see something as authoritative. Both the righteous and the wicked desire something. So it's not that the righteous, they bow down to authority, and the wicked, they have desires. The righteous also have desires, and the wicked also bow down to authority. But here is the essence of it. At the essence of wickedness is treating the desires before you as that which is ultimately authoritative. They could be your own desires, they could be your parents' desires, they could be your culture's desires, they could be the world's desires, but you take these desires that come apart from and often run contrary to the creator, and we bow down to them as that which is ultimately authoritative. The righteous are those who treat the authority of God as that which is ultimately desirable. What I delight in, O oh God, is for your will to be done even though that's not what I want right now. And, and that's, that's at the essence of righteousness. And so to steal a line from Christopher Nolan in The Dark Knight, if you live long enough to become a villain, this is your origin story. If you live long enough to become the villain, this is your origin story. It's not that you'll be, you know, a guy with a mustache twirling it as you, you know, need to be stopped by James Bond because you're launching some world domination scheme. It will just be that you are a person who says, what my parents want is more important than what God wants. What my university wants is what I want is more important. And that is the pathway to all future evil. This is the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whether we say God's will is at the center or whether we say the desires of the world and of ourselves, and it doesn't really matter which one you choose there, is at the center. Um, Hannah Arendt, famous Jewish philosopher in the 20th century, she was at the, the trials in Israel of some of the Third Reich leaders, and she very famously coined this expression, the banality of evil, that you think evil is going to be really sinister, but it's actually really boring. It's just people who stop caring about what's right and just start doing either what the people in authority over you want or what you want, and it's so banal, but this is the origin story of evil. And so in this, Jesus is, I think, holding before us again the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and saying, when that moment comes, don't do what you want. Do what God has commanded. Do what God desires. This is the important thing here. In James 4, very famously, James says, what's the origin of all the evil in your community? Murder and adultery and bickering and this and that. He says, is it not? 
that you have desires and those desires are not being satisfied and you now retaliate against other people or you now transgress boundaries that you know you shouldn't, that this is the very, very simple origin story underneath all of it. So one last thing and then we're gonna move in a good direction, I promise, but, but I want us to, to hear this challenge and to, and to feel the gravity of the moment when the fork in the road comes and there's what God wants versus what the world or I want, you are at that same moment that Adam and Eve were at in Genesis 3. You are before the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whether you get access to the tree of life or whether you're banished outside of the garden depends on what you do here. And so last thing I want to say here and then we'll move in, it's central to Proverbs. There's lady wisdom, there's lady foolishness. It's central to Deuteronomy and Joshua. See, I've set before you this day life and death. Choose this day who you will serve. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which the Lord's Prayer is in, Jesus said, if anyone does the will of my Father, hears my words and does them, it's like the house built on the rock, anybody doesn't. There's two ways, two paths, and they lead to two outcomes. One of the earliest, probably the earliest Christian document we have in history outside of the New Testament, and some scholars would actually say that this was written before some of the latest New Testament documents. It's written probably around 96, 97 AD. It's called the Didache, which is a Greek word for teaching or instruction. It's very short. I would encourage you to read it. It's not inspired. It's not canonical, but it was basically like an instruction manual for you want to be a Christian? Here's what it means to be a Christian. And here's the first thing the Didache says. There are two ways. One of them leads to life and one of them leads to death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. The way of life then is this. First, you shall love the God who made you. Second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And do not do to another person what you would not want done to you. C.S. Lewis very famously says, this is one of the things that Lewis does the best, he says in The Great Divorce, and The Great Divorce is basically a narrative fictional account of these two choices being played out in different people's lives. C.S. Lewis famously says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. Those are the only two kinds of human beings in the entire universe. People who say, against God, I, I want some, somebody else's will or desire, my own, my parents, my culture, they, they get there a million different ways. And as we follow Jesus, that can look a hundred different ways for sure, but that's the fork in the road. In his space trilogy, where Ransom kind of travels to all these other planets, Mars and Venus, these, these are great books if you've never read them before. He says in Paralandra, the second book, and even though there seemed to be and indeed were a thousand roads by which a person could walk through the world. There's so many choices before all of us. And in every situation, there was not a single road which did not lead sooner or later either to the beautific vision or to the miserific vision. And I want you to hear that when the moment comes, God's will, my will, my parents' will, whatever, whoever else's will who's not the creator, that this is the fork in the road between those two roads. This is the fork in the road. This is the fork in the road. And so question, hard question, important question. When you come to that fork in the road, what road do you take? When you come to that fork in the road, which road do you take? That is what Jesus is holding before us. Now, last thing, and this is why I can't end right here. Both heteronomy and autonomy 
lead to ruin, they lead to misery, they don't just lead to an arbitrary God excludes you from life, they don't just lead to it harms other people, although I think both paths do, but it finally leads to misery for you. And so here is maybe the most counterintuitive thing about the Christian faith, and I think more than anything else I've said so far today, and I think some of the stuff I've said is really important, even though it's really hard, I think this is the most important thing I'm going to say. Let me quote one of the great theologians of church history. It's one sentence. This is Thomas Aquinas, who along with Augustine is very influential in the Catholic Church. Augustine's also influential for us Protestants. Aquinas not as much, but Aquinas is very brilliant. And Aquinas says this, you never offend God except by doing something that is totally contrary to your own good. You never disobey God except by doing something that is harmful to you. You never, ever disobey God except by doing something that is contrary to you. This is why I wanted us to read Psalm 40 next to the Garden of Gethsemane account where Jesus says, not what I want, but what you want. And yet Psalm 40 can hold out and Hebrews 10 can say, this is the deepest truth about Jesus, that he is someone who delights to do God's will. He doesn't do it through gritted teeth. He doesn't do it in the despair that, well, God's going to be glorified. Other people are going to be helped, but I am signing my death sentence by doing this. I am giving up all chance at happiness. I am giving up all my, my hopes and dreams that Jesus doesn't actually do that. Richard Bauckham says that Christianity is neither autonomy nor heteronomy. Here's what it is. It's the hope that in the future you are on a path of becoming someone where what God wants and what you want are 100% identical. That's the future. The future as you pray this, as you follow Jesus, as you are transformed by the Spirit, and this is why in Christianity we do not hold, and we'll talk about this next week, our hope is not you're going to die one day and your soul is going to float away from God into an eternal heavenly state where you and God are going to be face-to-face in disembodied spirits. The world itself will be healed. And so one day a world is coming where you will never be out of line with God's will on a level of desire, and the world itself will never present a scenario where what God wants is anything counter to what you want or what somebody else needs. That day is coming. So what we hope for is the reunification of heaven and earth. What we pray for is that as this is already happening in heaven, it will increasingly happen in earth, including in our lives. If you remember when our friend Stan Thomas was preaching here last week, he's preaching on the bread of life in John 6. And I want you to to remind you of something that Jesus says a little earlier in the Gospel of John. In John 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life, and he says, if anyone hungers, come to me, and he'll be satisfied. That that needs to be part of this story, that this is actually, following Jesus is the way to get what you want more than anything else. And there's a danger in putting it that way. But in the long run, this is actually what we desire. This is actually what the world desires if we would understand what we really need and what we really desire. And in John 4, right before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus says to the disciples, I have bread, I have food that you do not know about. You guys are hungry. I'm hungry too, but I'm okay, whereas you're whining because I have other food you don't know about. And they're like, hey, you got some, you got some like candy in your pocket? Like, Jesus, come on, like, 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 Give it up. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What gives me satisfaction, what keeps me alive, what I perceive to be that which is most essential to my needs, not just the glory of God, not just you guys, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. Especially when we do confession of sin, 
We often use language from the old Book of Common Prayer, and one of the two or three most famous statements in the Book of Common Prayer comes from Thomas Cramner in the Anglican Church in England centuries ago, is that we confess that the God we belong to is the God in whose service is perfect freedom. That to serve God is to find your freedom. This is the book of Exodus. I'm going to free you as slaves, not to go off and do whatever you want, but to come and serve me. And so service is on both sides. You've got to serve somebody, whether yourself or your parents, your culture or God. But God is the only one whose will will lead to our flourishing and the world's flourishing. And so when we come to those forks in the road, we're right here and right now. This is what I want and this is what God wants. We navigate those moments knowing that in the long run, what God wants is what I want. In the long run, what God desires is what I desire. And so, guys, I'm going to put this in my own words as we end, that I am 100% convinced as a Christian, as a pastor, that I am authorized to speak for Jesus and to speak for God and to promise this to you. If you become a person who, through the Spirit and as you follow Jesus with others, you walk into each moment saying, not what I want, but what you want, O oh God, even to the point of being willing to suffer in the short run, even taking up your cross, self-denial, going through a lot of hard things that you could otherwise avoid. If you become a person who says, not what I want and not what my parents want and not what my culture wants, but what God wants, I promise you that your future self will thank you. I promise you that your future self will thank you. I promise you that you will not regret this. I promise you that this will go well for you. I promise that the, where this road leads is a better road than any other road that is before you promise you that. And so as we do this in hope, yes, there are these moments that are really, really hard, but we don't do it in despair. We do it with optimism. We do it in hope, which is, let me end with this, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. I started with 1 Corinthians 6. Our culture, and I think every culture in the history of the world, in a fallen world, finds this statement in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you belong to God. And if somebody says, well, yeah, like these, you know, these Gen Zers who are all, all into autonomy, but you know, the boomers and the, the silent generation, like they were all about doing somebody else's will. But saying that you are not your own, you belong to God is to also say you're not your parents. It is to also say that you don't belong to your culture. It's also to say that you don't belong to the government. It's also to say that you don't belong to your friends and what they want and expect of you, but you belong to God. Um, if we could put it up on the screen, every once in a while we, we use this as our confession of faith. The Heidelberg Catechism is a very warm, just kind of confession of faith. And it, the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And it says this, my only comfort and my deepest comfort is that I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, and he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from the he my head without the will, the gracious will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on, to want to live for him. That's what it means to be a Christian. To not just say that that's true, but to say that's better. 
to say that's what gives me hope, so it gets me out of bed in the morning, so it gives me a sense of optimism for the future, not just helps me to do the right thing right here and now. And, and so one last time, I'm gonna bring it back. There's autonomy, start with your own desires internally and follow those. There's heteronomy, let other desires come from the outside and follow those. And here's what Christianity is, your law is written on my heart, O God. That a law that comes from the outside becomes the law of my own heart. And how does that happen? Not through imitating Jesus, although that, if, if, if I ended here, it would just be like, Jesus did this, guys, you go do this now. It's that Jesus has broken the power of sin through doing God's will, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit on his followers. And at the heart of the new covenant is to have the will of God, which does absolutely come from the outside, but to have it engraved on your own heart and to become the will and the desire of your own life. None of us is even close to being fully aligned with that yet. If you're a Christian, I think you're going to resonate with at least something that I'm saying. Yeah, God's will and my will, they finally come together. And I have found that I find more joy when I follow Jesus than when I do what I want or my parents or my culture wants. But there are these moments along the way. And so the third and the last question is this. Every time you come to this fork in the road, I want to ask yourself the question, do you see that this is going to be delightful for you? Do you see that this is the path to your flourishing? Do you see that this is the law that is written on your own heart through the Spirit, and at the end of this is comedy and not tragedy, joy and not despair? At the end of this is the beatific vision and not the miserific vision. You have to know that. You have to have that. And in case you're like, well, interesting, like that, that makes sense theoretically, but, but how do we know that's true? In the same moment of his life where Jesus said, not... I don't want this to happen, God. Would you take this cup away from me? And yet still said, not what I want, but what you want. Something else is going on there that the writer of Hebrews reminds us of, that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That it was for the joy set before him that he said no to what he wanted and no to what other people want, and he pursued this. The joy of this has to be set before you. You cannot do this just through willpower. You cannot say, God is going to be glorified, my neighbors are going to be helped, but my story ends in the grave and tragedy. You cannot do that as a Christian because that's not true. You have to know that for every moment of death, there is a moment of resurrection, whether in this life or in the life to come, but that death is part of the story. We cannot avoid it. We have to die to ourselves constantly, but you have to know that God is going to raise you from the dead. You have to know that nothing you give up will ever finally be lost. You have to know that no moment of suffering will ever not be compensated for. You have to know that Jeff and Kathy, as they struggle with Parkinson's right now, that they're in a comedy and they're not in a tragedy. That doesn't mean that there's not tears right now. It doesn't mean that you don't get really frustrated and get really confused, but this is the path towards life. This is the path that we can trust. And so as we come to the Lord's table, let me read this. I, I, I probably don't read this very famous passage as much as a lot of other pastors and churches do, but I think this week it's, it's really relevant. So I want you to come to the table, seeing the Garden of Gethsemane, seeing the death of Jesus through both of these lenses. Here's the first lens. This is Isaiah 53. What's happening here in the Garden of Gethsemane? What's happening is Jesus comes to this fork in the road and says, not what I want, but what the Father wants. Isaiah 53 says... He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. And he was one from whom human beings hide their faces. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. 
And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. That is, I do not want this to ever happen to me. This, this is a curse for this to happen to a human being. And yet, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's a bigger story that this individual moment is encompassed by. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And that's what happens when you come up and you take this. By his wounds you are being healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every single one of us, to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He wasn't dominated by grumbling and complaining and self-pity as he did this. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, no sons, no daughters, his line ends here. This is the end for Jesus. And he was stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So right there, Jesus' story is there. Our story is there. We're receiving benefits. And now Isaiah 53 steps back and reminds us that this is the biggest story. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yet what God wanted in this moment was for Jesus to die so that we could live. That's what God wanted in this moment. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. God himself has put this man to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for our guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days because the will of the Lord is not only something that crushes him, but that something will raise him from the dead and bring him into the enjoyment of everything that he's done here with us. And so the will of the Lord will, future tense, prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For the joy that is set before him, he did this. And so I want you to know that sometimes the will of God absolutely sends you to something that feels like death. I also want you to know that the will of the Lord is something that as you do it, you will prosper and you will see and be satisfied in the future. And a Christian has to believe both those things. And why do we believe those things? We believe those things because of Jesus Christ. We believe those things because of the Garden of Gethsemane. We believe those things because of his death and resurrection. And so I want to give you permission as you come up here. You, it's absolutely okay to taste some of the bitterness of this as you taste this. It is, but I want you to also taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to also, for the joy that is set before you, remember where this path leads a little farther on. And this is where we get our bearings. This is our compass. This is our itinerary that we follow Jesus. And so let me pray, and then let's come and say, not our will, but your will. Not what we want, but what you want, O oh God.